All right, we'll turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, right at the beginning of the New Testament. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the Christmas story, and so we began with the genealogy that Matthew gives us in chapter 1. And we saw that he kind of highlights three things, Abraham, David, and the exile. And so Abraham indicates to us that Jesus will be the true Israel. David is hinting at the fact that Jesus will be the true king. And the exile tells us that Jesus is going to be the true end of the exile. And just as a side note, all of those themes, though I'm not really going to spend time talking about it, all of those themes are present in what we will see today. Then we looked at prophecies and preparation. So we saw Gabriel visiting Mary. We saw Mary visiting Elizabeth. We saw an angel visiting Joseph as God kind of set the people up for what he was about to do. He gave them instructions. He told them, here's what's about to happen. Here's how you should respond. And we see them responding in faith and obedience in preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus itself. We saw Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem. We noted that Caesar Augustus is the one who's in charge of the Roman Empire, and that sets us up for this contrast between Caesar being Lord and Jesus being Lord. We saw the birth of Jesus and the response there of the shepherds and the angels. We saw that Jesus then, in the days following his birth, was presented at the temple. So Joseph and Mary were being obedient to the law. They were doing the things they were supposed to do. And then as they took Jesus to the temple, we saw Simeon and Anna, who both had been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And they respond when they see Jesus there. And so all of those things have pointed us to who Jesus is and have given us some hints at how we should be responding to him. This morning, we're going to be looking at the visit of the wise men or the magi to Jerusalem, first of all, and then to Bethlehem as they visit Jesus. We're going to see Jesus' family fleeing to Egypt. We're going to see the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem as Herod is threatened. And then we're going to see Jesus' family returning to the land of Israel. And that kind of caps off the Christmas story. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 and looking at verses 1 through 23 going to kind of divide it up into a couple of different sections this morning and read each section kind of as we come to it. So the first one where we're going to begin is verses 1 through 8 as the wise men visit Jerusalem. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 2, you can just follow along as I read uh, Matthew 2 verses 1 through 8. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And the word Christ there is the Messiah. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So we'll stop there for now. And I'll just kind of at each point try to explain what we're seeing in the text. And Herod here is noted as the king. It's in the days of Herod the king. Well, that's setting us up because Jesus is going to be the true king. Again, just like we, we saw that Caesar was the one who was in charge of the Roman Empire and Jesus is going to be Lord, even though Caesar supposedly is Lord. Here now, specifically in the land of Israel, Herod is the king, but Jesus is going to be the true king. And so this situates the story historically in the days of Herod, but it also sets us up for this royal conflict that's coming as Jesus is king and Herod is going to feel threatened. We're going to see what he does because of that. These wise men, we are told, come from the east. So probably from Babylon. Um, another word for them is magi. What they are is royal counselors. So they're, they're people who would attend the royal court and would be the advisors when the king has some question about what's going on in the world or how he should think about things. They're the ones, probably they often would veer off into things like astrology and you know some things that we would say, well, that's really off base. But whatever it is that they normally do, here God gives them a message. Practically speaking, how do they get this message? My best guess is that when Daniel and his friends were carted off to Babylon, they were people who were well-versed in the scriptures and they probably shared what they knew. We know that Daniel and his friends were part of the royal court there. They probably shared what they knew with the people who were there. It gets recorded and maybe, you know, 500 some years later, these guys are studying and they're recognizing, hey, there's something that's about to happen. And however it is that they come across this information, they recognize the birth of this coming king. And there's a hint here that they understand this king who has been born to be significant beyond Israel. Otherwise, why would they come? If it's just another king for that land, what's the significance? Something is telling them that this particular king is significant beyond Israel. And so they come to Jerusalem. And that's natural. You're coming to that vicinity. Remember, Bethlehem's only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital. So you're going to go to the capital, you're going to go to the palace, and you're going to say, hey, where's the king who was just born? And Herod says, what do you mean? I'm the king. There is no other king here. And so he's going to be threatened as he senses that something is going on. Now, this prophecy that Herod gets from his advisors, yes, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, the point of this is Bethlehem is kind of inferior. It's not majestic and glorious like Jerusalem. The only thing that Bethlehem has going for it is that it's the town David was from. But it's a town of, of shepherds and, and blue-collar workers. But the fact that this is going to be a, a king who will shepherd my people Israel has to call to your mind King David. And that's Israel's greatest king. And so we have here, again, some hints as to who the Messiah is going to be. And so Herod decides, all right, let me figure out what I can do here. And he tries to ascertain from them when the star appeared. Now, this is not because Herod is just very interested in the stars or anything like that. He's trying to figure out, when was this kid born? How old is he now so that I know who I've got to eliminate? 
And so he hatches the plot. He says, you go find him and come back and tell me. And his intention is to get rid of him. He says he wants to worship. But like so many politicians today, he's just using faith or religion as a kind of a publicity stunt. It's something he's co-opting to, to give an impression that's not actually sincere. It's not from the heart. Well, let's go on to the next set of verses, verses 9 to 12. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we have the question here of the star. What is the star of Bethlehem? Is it a, a supernatural and unique star that God put in the sky that doesn't have any you know, precedent before it or something like that? Or is this like a comet that God from ages past planned to be in the right place at the right time? Or is it a planetary conjunction? All of the different ideas that people have put forward and some of them have written books about it. And we, at the end of the day, we really don't know what this star was. But we do know that God supernaturally used this to lead the wise men to the place where Jesus was. And notice too that it says it's a house. He's not still in the manger. This is later on. He, they're settled in a house at this point, whether that's they're living with Joseph's family or they've gotten a house in town. Don't know, but they're in a house. And so they're settled here in the town. Whatever the star is, the wise men are able to recognize it and its significance. And their response to this whole thing is rejoicing. That's a good lesson for us. They worship. Now, can you imagine highly respected individuals, whether they were academics or politicians or something like that, today bowing the knee and worshiping a child? It's not going to happen, is it? There's something very unique and different going on here. And the wise men give gifts, and those gifts have traditional associations. And by the way, we always say, you know, like we three kings, like there's three wise men. Probably not. There's probably a lot more than that. We have three traditional names for the wise men. But the only reason we say three is because there's three different kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the only reason we have the number three. Chances are it's a much bigger caravan that shows up in Jerusalem because it causes a stir in the city. Either way, they bring these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there's traditional associations with those gifts, and those are important, but there's also something beyond that that I want you to see. So first of all, the traditional things. Gold has to do with royalty. It's great value, and this speaks to the idea that Jesus will be the king. Frankincense has aromatic qualities. It's used, if you look at the Old Testament, it's used in the temple offerings for the incense offerings. So it smells good. That points to the fact that Jesus' life would be a fragrant offering to God. That's how it's described. Myrrh is often used in anointing for burial. So Jesus' body would be anointed when he dies, and it's his death that accomplishes our salvation. So 
In some senses, these verses are kind of pointing to some key things about who Jesus is. But beyond that, there's more. There are Old Testament stories that are kind of echoing down through the years here into what Matthew tells us in this story. And the first one that I want you to see is from Isaiah chapter 60. Now there's three slides here, but it's Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 6. So just listen to what's said here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, that phrase right there, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, sounds a lot like how Luke describes the angels, right? The glory of the Lord shone around them. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now listen to this. And nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. So we have here the idea that people from outside Israel are going to come worship when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, it's going to draw the nations in. And here we have the wise men who are from another nation. They're from the east and they're coming in just like the prophets had foretold. Now this is just a hint of what's going to happen, but it's the beginning. We have those outside of Israel being drawn in at the appearance of the Messiah. This passage goes on, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. That's kind of that, the end of exile as the people are returning. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. So the sea often indicates the Gentiles in scripture. So we have the abundance of the Gentiles, we have the wealth of the nations being brought in. What's happening in our story? We have the wise men from the east bringing these valuable gifts to Jesus. It's like this little hint at the beginning of what's going to happen as the Messiah becomes king and ultimately over the thousands of years people the nations come in loyalty to Christ they come and they worship him then we see the last verse a multitude of camels shall cover you the young camels of Midian and Ephah all those from Sheba shall come they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord so here we have two of the exact gifts that are brought, gold and frankincense. And notice that it says from Sheba. If you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, that might bring something to your mind because there's a visitor from Sheba to Israel that we have a story about. It's the queen of Sheba who comes to visit King Solomon. So this whole thing refers to the nations streaming to Israel. It mirrors the visit of queen, the Queen of Sheba when she comes because she hears of the fame of Solomon. So here's, here's what it says, 1 Kings chapter 10. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. Again, it's a foreign dignitary coming to Israel, bringing gifts, bringing the wealth of the nations in. And here our story is echoing that 
at the same time that it's kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in the future because the nations will come to worship Christ. And think about what Jesus says. He, he talks about the response to him and he says, during his ministry, he says, a greater than Solomon is here. He compares himself directly to Solomon and says that he is the greater one. Now, that's gold and frankincense in the Isaiah 60 passage. What about myrrh? There's another passage that I think probably should come to our mind here. When Joseph, you remember, you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and how his brothers hated him because he had the dreams about his brothers bowing down to him and that whole, that whole story. When Joseph's brothers want to get rid of him, what do they do? They fake his death, right? They throw him in a pit. They take his robe and they dip it in blood to fake his death. And then they sell him to some Ishmaelite traders who are coming through. Now, the symbolism here you have, you have a death, even though this one is faked. You have a burial in a pit. And you have these Gentiles who are coming through. And it's interesting to note exactly what is said here. This is Genesis 37. They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Okay, so here you have the association of myrrh with a death and a burial and heading down to Egypt, okay? All things that are kind of popping up in our, uh, in our story. So just like the Ishmaelite traders who take Joseph to Egypt, they bring myrrh into Egypt. Now we have wise men from the east bringing myrrh into Israel to give to a descendant of Joseph. If the Magi bringing myrrh to Israel mirrors the Ishmaelites bringing myrrh to Egypt, what does it tell us that Israel has become? Spiritually, Israel has become Egypt. It's a place of darkness. It's a place that has rejected God. Well, the wise men avoid Herod. They're recognizing, you know, God speaks to them in a dream and says, don't go back the way you came. I want you to go back a different way. And they're obedient to that. They don't, they don't struggle in their mind going, well, the civil magistrate here, Herod, told us that we need to do this, and so we should obey him. They, they don't worry about that. They recognize what he said to do is wrong. Ignore him. They do what's right. They obey what God has said. Now, in the rest of the account in Matthew 2, as we continue our story here, we're going to see Jesus' family flee to Egypt. We're going to see Herod slaughter the baby boys in Bethlehem, and then we're going to see Jesus' family come back. And at each point... Matthew is presenting these things as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Some are easier than others to see. But we're going to try to understand what Matthew's communicating by telling us about these events and how they fulfill prophecies. So let's look at the next one. It'll be verses 13 through 15 of Matthew 2. All right. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So the angel's message here is, flee to Egypt and stay there until you get further word. Now who's responsible for the family? Joseph is, because he's the father, he's the husband, he's the dad. So he does the responsible thing. He obeys what the angel says. There's a threat against Jesus, and God's going to sovereignly protect Jesus and carry out his plan. But Joseph does exactly what the angel says, and we've seen that all through the weeks. Every time Joseph shows up, he's obedient and he's faithful. And his obedience here is immediate, too. Right? He gets the message in a dream, and they depart by night. It's right away. The gifts that the Magi brought, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, are probably what finance their journey to Egypt and getting themselves set up in Egypt, because they're going to be there a while. So they probably buy a house with a shop so that Joseph can work and, and can carry out his carpentry or his artisan business there in Egypt. And it's probably the gift that the Magi brought that financially allow them to do that. Well, eventually, Herod's going to die, but Matthew tells us that the reason for this whole flight to Egypt is to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that's a quote from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's referring back to the story of the nation of Israel in Egypt. The whole story with Moses and Pharaoh and, you know, their, the, the deliverance at the Red Sea, all of that. But Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfills it because Jesus is the true Israel. He is going through the motions of what happened to Israel. He is the new Israel. And so just like Israel as a nation came up out of Egypt to the Promised Land, same thing is going to happen now with Jesus. The next part of the story then, verses 16 to 18, is the slaughter of the infants. Here's what we find. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod realizes that he's been tricked by the wise men, and he gets angry. And so he's got to eliminate the threat, at least in his mind, this is what he's got to do. So he goes into Bethlehem, and he kills all the baby boys who are two, two and a half and under, in an effort to eliminate whoever this is that has been born as the king. Now, I'm not trying to downplay this, but sometimes we imagine this to be thousands of babies. It's probably like 10 to 20. Bethlehem's a very small town. You know, there's not many people in the region. There's probably 10 to 20 baby boys that are killed here. That's not to minimize it. It's still horrible. But I just want us to have kind of a good historical understanding of what's going on. Now, what Herod does is, of course, an echo of what Pharaoh tried to do. Pharaoh was threatened as the Israelites were growing in Egypt. And so what did he do? He says, it's time to kill all the baby boys. 
Herod is showing himself to be a second pharaoh. And just like Egypt, or Jesus is going to come up out of Egypt, God is going to protect his people in spite of a ruler who's trying to kill him. And so we have this, this statement here that this is fulfilling the prophecy from Jeremiah. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29. <coughs> Excuse me. Jeremiah chapter 29. We're, we're not going to read all of this, but I want to kind of skim through a couple of these chapters. And I want you to also just have in mind the prophecy. So I'm putting it on the screen, Matthew 2, 17 to 18, what we just read. And up in the right-hand corner is the, the chapters that I want you to be looking at while we're doing this. So if you need to refer back to what Matthew says, here it is on the screen. But in your Bible in front of you, you're looking at Jeremiah 29 to 31. Okay, so Jeremiah, you go to the middle of your Bible and turn right, uh, and you'll find it in a, in a few books there. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, let me give you a little background. Herod, okay, so the, 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 the Herod who is king in Jesus' day, is an Idumean. That means he's from Edom. He's a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. In other words, he has no legitimate claim to the Jewish throne. He's related, sort of, but he has no legitimate claim to the throne. Israel is still under foreign rule, whether you're considering that to be Herod in the land of Israel or Caesar in the Roman Empire, Israel is under foreign rule. Now, Herod was evil. He had at least 10 wives, including two of his nieces. He killed a number of his wives, killed a number of his sons, anyone who was a threat to him. It was said, in Herod's day, that it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. Just to give you an example, this is a threat that he made, that, that, an order that he gave. It was never carried out, but he ordered that upon his death, all of the leading citizens in Israel should be slaughtered so that there would be real tears, real mourning when he died. That's the kind of person Herod is, okay? Now, we have this, this prophecy, voice was heard in Rama. Where is Rama? Rama is between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's the place where Rachel's tomb is, okay? So Rachel was, and, and by the way, this, this whole association with Rama has two parts to it. One has to do with the exile. One has to do with Rachel's story. So Rachel is Jacob's wife. Remember, Jacob has four women that he has children with, but this is his favorite wife. She's the one who bore him Joseph and Benjamin. Now, when Joseph was taken to Egypt, like we already talked about, we're told that Jacob refused to be comforted. Okay? And when Benjamin was born, Rachel named him Benoni. Now, it was changed to Benjamin, but she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. So the connection to Rama and Rachel's grave, along with the sorrow that is associated with Rachel's children, is kind of the sense that Matthew is evoking here. As he says, this is the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem is a fulfillment of this prophecy from Jeremiah. Now Joseph's sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. So they become two of the tribes in Israel. Um, those two 
were in the north in Israel, and they are taken captive by Assyria in 722. So that's the first part of the exile, the Assyrian captivity. That's 150 years before the exile to Babylon. Now, Benjamin, the other son, his tribe is in the south, in Judah. So when Babylon comes in and takes Judah captive, that is the rest of Rachel's children being taken. It's the remainder of Rachel's sons, Rachel's children, being taken into exile, being taken out of the land. In other words, as far as the land of Israel is concerned, they are no more. Now, with that background in mind, when we think about what's going on in Jeremiah, why is Matthew pointing us there? Jeremiah 29, where you're looking, is part of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And he tells them things like some of the verses are kind of familiar. He says things like build houses and plant gardens and get married and multiply there because you're going to be there a while. If you look at verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, Okay, verses 10 to 14, here's what we find. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Well, that's, what's that talking about? That's talking about, okay, Babylon has taken the Jews into exile. That's going to last 70 years. And then God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you back into the land. Okay, and I will, I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. I'll visit you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. That's repentance. Remember when Jesus begins his ministry, he has someone who comes before him, John the Baptist, preaching a message of repentance. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this is a prophecy about the exile ending. And then Jeremiah 29 goes on to speak about God's judgment on Israel's king, and leaders because of their sin. It describes destruction and horror. So this time that Jeremiah is prophesying about is going to be the return from exile and a time of hope and blessing, but it's also a time of judgment and wrath. It's both at the same time. And the question is, which side of it are you going to be on? That's the question all throughout Jesus' ministry that he's raising. Because in Jesus' day, there's still foreign rulers. God is still absent. They're still under exile spiritually. See, what happens is they, the, the exile ends physically. They come back into the land. Temple's been destroyed, but they come back. They build the temple, and all the young people who heard stories about the temple are going, this is fantastic, and they're rejoicing because they see the temple. And all the old people who saw the old temple are crying because the new one is nothing like the old one. It, it doesn't, even, doesn't even come close to matching up. And as you realize the, what, what goes on in the story, God never comes back. He never comes back to Jerusalem. He never comes back to fill the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. It never comes back. 
when Jesus comes on the scene, the temple is an empty shell. The exile has ended physically. Yes, they're back in the land, but it hasn't ended spiritually. They still need to have repentance and God needs to come visit them and, and fulfill these promises that Jeremiah is talking about. So as the Babylonian exile was punishment for Israel's unfaithfulness, it's, it's actually a picture of a greater exile, a spiritual exile and the judgment that comes because of that. When does that judgment come? It falls on Israel in AD 70. And the killing of the baby boys in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth is like the beginning of that judgment. It's the first hint of what's about to happen. So if you're there in Jeremiah, look at verse, in chapter 30, look at verse 7. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Listen to the description. Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. That language is almost exactly how Jesus describes the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And the text just kind of all through Jeremiah in these chapters, it bounces back and forth between promises of restoration and blessing and descriptions of the wrath that is coming as well. Look at verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 30. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished his inten the intentions of his mind. In the latter days you will understand this. So God is speaking of the judgment of exile, the 70 years in Babylon. But beyond that, it's pointing to the judgment that's going to fall on Israel in AD 70. When Jesus shows up, the suffering in Bethlehem, when Herod kills the baby boys, is a foreshadowing. It's a hint. It's a beginning of the suffering that's going to happen 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. However, Jeremiah 31 is where Matthew is quoting from. Why does he bring Jeremiah 31 to mind? And the answer is, because there is hope. It, I'm not going to read chapter 31, but just skim through it with me. Just look at it as I kind of summarize. The first 14 verses of chapter 31 is all talking about how they will be restored to peace and honor. Verses 15 to 17, sorrow for the loss of their children will end. That's where this prophecy is drawn from by Matthew. Verses 18 to 20, they will repent and God will accept their repentance. Verses 21 to 30, they will be fruitful and multiply again. Verses 31 to 34, God will give them a new covenant. That's the new covenant that Jesus brings. Verses 35 to 37, the blessings of the new covenant will be theirs forever. Verses 38 to 40, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt as a sign of this coming blessing. I, I know that's a lot of details, but here's the point. What Matthew is telling us is that in Jesus, the exile of God's people is now coming to an end in Christ. Not in the way they expected. It's not about physical land and the physical temple 
but in Christ. The spiritual separation from God that was caused by their sin, that spiritual separation is now being resolved by Christ. The physical exile was always just a picture of a a greater spiritual reality. And Jesus is here to bring about the true end of exile. And therefore, though at this moment in time, Rachel is weeping for her children. In other words, there's mourning in Bethlehem because Herod has slaughtered the infants. As Jeremiah had prophesied, that mourning is coming to an end in Christ. The last section of our story here this morning, verses 19 to 23, tells us about Jesus' family returning now to Israel. So follow along as I read. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So the angel's message is, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Now this is not the first time God has led his people out of Egypt and to Israel. Okay, But he's doing it again. He said, those who sought the child's life are dead. So practically speaking, Herod's gone. It's safe to return. Symbolically, that calls to mind Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh sought to take the lives of the Israelite baby boys. And once Pharaoh was dead, that's what now allowed the Israelites to be leaving. God kills Pharaoh and the Israelites are free to leave Egypt. Now again, the one who's baby boys in Bethlehem, Herod, is gone. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus are free to leave Egypt for the land of Israel. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Israel who comes up out of Egypt into the promised land. And Joseph, again, is obedient. He does what he's told to do. Since Archelaus is ruling, Joseph goes to Galilee as he was warned in a dream to do. That's not a fearful decision. It's a prudent, it's a wise decision. It's obedient to what he's being told by God. And then we get this strange statement in verse 23 about how this is fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Joseph chooses Nazareth as the city they're going to make their home. And the text says that that happened so that this prophecy could be fulfilled. Here's the problem. There is no prophecy about Nazareth or about the Messiah living there. So what do we do with that? We are people who believe that the Bible is the word of God and it is inerrant. There's no errors in it. It is inspired by God. So what do we do when we come to a passage like this? How do we solve this? What is Matthew doing? Well, I want to give you a possible solution. I think it's the right one. I don't know for sure. But I think it makes sense of what Matthew does here. First of all, notice that Matthew uses the plural prophets. 
as the prophets had spoken. He, in other words, he's not referring to a specific prophet who gave a specific prophecy. Rather, he's talking about a theme that is generally found in the prophets. Now, I'm going to give you a summary of what I think he's saying, and then I'll go back and explain it. Here's the summary. The theme, I think, is that the Messiah would be a suffering savior, one who would deny himself and carry out the will of the Father, which is holy war against Satan and sin and death. Here's how we get there. First of all, to be from Nazareth is not respectable. It can be a title of contempt. So, for example... When Philip told Nathanael about Jesus, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That tells you something of the reputation of Nazareth. Or another example from John chapter 7, some said, is the Messiah, the Christ, to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was, right? Just like the, just like the the advisors told Herod he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So that's where he's from, right? So there was a division among the people over him. Now, a little later in the chapter, they replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see. that No prophet arises from Galilee. Right? So everybody is going, look, you read the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah doesn't come from Nazareth, he comes from Bethlehem. And nothing good comes from Nazareth. And there's no prophets that come from Galilee. You're way off base, right? This can't be right. There's a close... So, so, so being from Nazareth is being despised. Being rejected. Like we find in Isaiah 53. Being scorned, being despised. Like we find in Psalm 22. Both of those passages that are pointing us to the Messiah. The word for someone who is a Nazarene, someone who is from Nazareth, and the word in the Old Testament for someone who is a Nazarite, those words are very similar. In the Greek translation, they're only off by one letter. I think Matthew is also giving us a little play on words here about a Nazarite. Now, what is a Nazarite in the Old Testament? Well, Nazarite comes from the word Nazir, means separation or separate. And in the Old Testament law, we find instructions for someone who's going to take a Nazarite vow. It's a short-term vow of holy war. The person was essentially made a priest for a short time. He's dedicated to the purpose of holy war. And often, not always, but often, it's for the purpose of delivering God's people from some oppressor, some enemy. Now, the, 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 the kind of main example of this would be Samson. Samson takes a Nazarite vow. And so the outward signs of that, you don't cut your hair. So Samson has long hair because it's kind of like the longer the hair grows, that's how long he's been dedicated to the Lord. He doesn't drink wine. Now, the reason for that is not because there's something wrong with wine. The the reason for that is wine in the Bible is associated with Sabbath, with rest, And the Nazarite is taking a vow of holy war. He has a task. He has a mission. And so he's not resting. And so he doesn't drink wine until the mission is done. When the task is done, then he's free to partake. But 
during the duration of his vow, he doesn't partake of wine. And it also involves not touching dead bodies. Why? Dead bodies are unclean, according to Old Testament law, and this is holy war. So the warrior has to maintain holiness. You can't touch something unclean. Okay? So Samson's a, an example of that. It seems that Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, took a Nazarite vow. And I think that's what Matthew is getting at here. If, if you just think through the last, that final week of Jesus' life, Matthew 26, verse 29. Jesus says, at the Last Supper, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's, he's taking a vow here of abstinence from wine with a short-term kind of duration, and there's a particular thing that once it's accomplished, then he's going to be free to partake of it again. Now, what's the mission? What's the task that Jesus is about to do? If Jesus is a holy warrior, what is it that he's about to go do? Well, it's the cross. He's about to go to war with Satan. He's going to defeat Satan and sin and death on the cross. So, what do we find at the crucifixion? Matthew 27, 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. That's the beginning of the crucifixion. But at the end of the crucifixion, listen to what we find from John's account. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, the task is done, the mission is accomplished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And what did he do? He received it. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was Jesus' Nazarite vow all about? He's carrying out God's holy war against Satan. He's defeating Satan and sin and death on the cross. So when Matthew presents Jesus as fulfilling prophecy by being a Nazarene, I think what he's doing is he's taking these two themes that both have to do with suffering and rejection and self-denial. Right? The, the one, he's from Nazareth. Nobody respects anybody from Nazareth. You re they're, they're despised, they're rejected. So there's that theme. And there's this theme of the Nazarite vow, the holy warrior, the one who denies himself in order to accomplish the mission. That thread is pulled together too. And Matthew lumps it together by calling him a Nazarene. So these are both themes that are present all through the Old Testament. And Matthew's telling us Jesus fulfills these things. Contrary to expectations, this is exactly how the Messiah is going to carry out his task of delivering people, God's people, from their enemies. I know that's a lot. The way that Matthew tells the story, though, it's like it's just got all these layers you have to keep peeling back because he's telling us something about Jesus. By the way he tells the story, he wants you to see who Jesus is and over and over, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these prophecies. So as we wrap this up this morning, what is it that we see about Jesus? 
Well, first of all, it's that. He fulfills all these prophecies. Everything the Old Testament was saying that was pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus fulfills it all. He's the one. Specifically, he's the king. This happens in the days of Herod the king. Herod tries to eliminate the threat. It doesn't work because Jesus is protected by God. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the true royal son of David. He's also the new Israel. He's the one who comes up out of Egypt into Israel. He's the one who, who, will, who will do and be all that Israel was supposed to be all along. He's also the end of exile. God's people were still in spiritual exile, separated from God, waiting for God to act. Jesus is the one who, through his actions on the cross, reconciles God to man, brings them back together. And he's the suffering savior. He's the holy warrior. He's the victor. So how should we respond to that? Again, just look at the responses of the people in the story. What do the wise men do? I don't know how much background they actually had. I don't know how much they actually understood. But I think it's, it's pretty dramatic that these court officials from a foreign... It's not just the people in power. It's every one of us. Jesus threatens the things that we often hold dear. Things we don't want to let go of. Herod gives us the wrong example because he's threatened by who Jesus is. And I'll just point out one last thing here, Joseph. Over and over through the story, Joseph just simply responds in faith and obedience. We really don't have much dialogue from Joseph. He disappears from the story fairly early on. He probably dies. He's probably quite a bit older than Mary. He's not around when Jesus' ministry comes on. But everything we see about Joseph, he's desiring to act in a way that is obedient and faithful. And that should be our response too. O come all ye faithful. Joseph fits that description. We want to be people who, who come as faithful and obedient ones and who come to adore, who come to worship this one who is the Messiah. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us, teach us to respond rightly to the story of Christmas. There's so many things about Christmas that are just enjoyable because we, we have uh, nice family times and the nice decorations and the food and the gifts and all of those things are good things because if we have them in context, they're blessings from you. And so we don't want to minimize any of those things. It's not like we need to be austere and do away with the gifts and all of that stuff. That, that's not the point at all. But, but we do want to remember that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. This one who came to suffer, to deny himself, and to carry out this holy war against sin and Satan and death so that he could rescue us from our sins, so that he could end our spiritual separation, our exile from God. And he's the king. He's the one who deserves our worship and our loyalty. Teach us through the Christmas story to respond rightly to Christ.
We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.